My guest today is astronomer Dr. Mark Schwalter. Dr. Mark Schwalter is a senior research scientist and principal investigator at the SETI Institute. His research focuses on ring moon systems. He works on some of NASA's highest profile missions to outer planets. He has been a member of Cassini mission science team for nearly a decade. He is frequent user of Hubble Space Telescope and is involved in the observations of Jupiter's rings using New Horizons spacecraft. Dr. Schwalter has to his credit the discovery of Jupiter's outermost ring, Saturn's moon Pan and two moons and two faint rings around the planet Uranus. Dr. Mark Schwalter is with me on the phone from California. Mark, thank you very much for taking my call. Great to be here, Wassam. Thank you. Mark, before we begin our discussion, uh, please tell us about yourself, about your education and about your career. Uh, how did you get to where you are now? Uh, so I went to college back in the 1970s at a very small liberal arts college in Ohio called Oberlin. Uh, it was uh, uh, very well known as a music college, but it had a, also a very strong uh, science program, and that was my main interest. I majored in math and physics there, and uh, around my senior year, so this is 1978-79, uh, I was trying to uh, figure out uh, what to do with a career in, in science, and it was just about at that time that the Voyager spacecraft uh, reached Jupiter. Uh, Voyager, uh, they were launched in, uh, in the late 70s. Uh, they flew by Jupiter and Saturn, uh, Saturn in 1980 and 81, and then uh, Voyager 2 went on to Uranus and Neptune as well. And so I feel like I kind of hitched a ride on, on the Voyager mission uh, just by, by good luck to have been coming into the field at just that right time. Uh, got to be part of uh, each of those missions and see those uh, the giant planets one by one in uh, amazing detail uh, as the uh, cameras on the spacecraft took, took some really stunning photographs. Uh, and I've been working on the giant planets ever since then. Um, I went to Cornell uh, as an undergraduate, or I'm sorry, as a graduate student. That was about the time when, Corn, uh, when um, Carl Sagan was still a professor there, so I got to know Carl a bit, uh, and that was a real privilege. And uh, since then, I've been uh, just doing research uh, along with uh, my colleagues on Voyager and then the Cassini mission and now the New Horizons mission, uh, studying each of the giant planets. And now I've added a dwarf planet, Pluto, to the mix. And in one of your presentations, you characterize yourself as a ring geek. <laughs> well, that's right. Uh, so... Uh, my, I, I was entering graduate school in 1980, and that was just about the time that we really saw the rings of Saturn up close for the first time. Voyager 1 reached Saturn in 1980, and I think uh, the rings just grabbed my attention, as they did quite a number of people at that moment. Uh, until then, people had really believed that the rings would be kind of boring, sort of bland, sort of uniform, uh, not really much very interesting going on there. And, of course, the Voyager 1 cameras uh, proved that to be totally incorrect. There were ringlets and, and uh, things called uh, spokes, and there were braided rings or things that looked like they were braided, uh, just extraordinary structures beyond anything anyone had imagined. And as I uh, sort of with a mathematical bent and an interest also in image analysis, uh, studying rings was just the perfect thing for me to do. It's the 
a topic where you can actually write an equation that describes an image. And uh, that's something you can't do if you're a geologist, usually, or, or some other kind of uh, imaging scientist. So the combination of knowing the math and knowing the image science uh, it just uh, was natural for me. And so I spent years and years studying, studying rings. And of course, I still do, although I've moved on now to studying a lot of the small satellites around the outer planets as well. When Galileo pointed his telescope towards Saturn uh, in about uh, 1610, uh, he was not able to fully understand that what was around the planet. In 1659, Christian Huygen published a drawing of the rings of Saturn and suggested uh, there were thin rings around the planet. Talk to us about the discovery of uh, rings around the planet Saturn. Yes, uh, well, as, as you mentioned, it was Galileo who saw them for the first time, and this uh, followed just uh, very shortly after he discovered four little moons uh, around, well, they're big moons, but uh, he saw them as little dots at Jupiter. They're now known as Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Uh, collectively, they're known as the Galilean satellites because of his discovery. So we had the idea, we understood the idea of a moon orbiting uh, a distant body like Jupiter, and so when he looked at Saturn, uh, this looked very different. He saw in his drawings it was actually like Saturn in the middle and two big moons like ears uh, on the sides. And he had no idea what that meant. He was really baffled. Uh, and it took quite a few years for other people to, to finally make sense out of that. One of the reasons it was so confusing is that uh, the rings are seen differently from the Earth at different times. The, uh, Saturn goes through its seasons. Sometimes the rings are wide open and you can see them very clearly from Earth. Sometimes they're almost perfectly edge-on and all you can see is maybe a very slender line, if that. So uh, over the years that people were trying to make sense of Galileo's discovery of ears, I guess you would say, on, on Saturn, uh, these things kept changing. Sometimes people would say, hey, there's nothing there now, and they were right because the rings, although they were there, they were edge onto the Earth and it wasn't possible to see them. Uh, so it was a real puzzle, and it was really uh, a great work of, of insight when Christian Huygens put all those pieces together and said, yeah, there's a ring, it's, uh, it's changing in the way it appears to the Earth, it's centered on Saturn, it's very thin. Uh, it was a really very clever, uh, important insight that he made. And when were Jupiter's rings discovered? Yes, well, uh, up until, uh, that was also a very, uh, very timely in terms of my career. Uh, let me, let me go backwards a little bit. We mm -hmm. only knew about Saturn's rings, of course, for, mm -hmm. for a couple of centuries there. Uh, then in the late 1970s, a great astronomer from MIT named Jim Elliott was doing an experiment where he was watching a star as it passed behind the planet Uranus as seen from Earth. So uh, he sets up his instrument where it just records how bright the star is as a, as a function of time. And, of course, the star blinks out when it passes behind Uranus because uh, the, uh, Uranus is opaque and blocks it. But uh, he also noticed in this experiment that the star blinked out five times before it reached Uranus, and it showed the same pattern but reversed of blinking out five times after and so Jim Elliott realized that that was the discovery of a couple of uh, five, in, in fact, narrow rings around Uranus. So that was the first time we ever really had any inkling that there was uh, a ring system around anything except Saturn. 
so that was the uh, context for the Voyager flyby in uh, 1980 when they decided, well, hey, if Saturn has rings and now we know Uranus has rings, let's take a look and see if Jupiter has rings too. And Voyager, by being up very close to the planet and having some very, very good uh, viewing, uh, was able to take some very, very long exposures that showed that Jupiter also has a has rings. In this case, there's a very, very faint ring system, um, almost uh, like a cloud of smoke, uh, but a but a ring-shaped cloud of smoke uh, orbiting orbiting Jupiter. So that was discovered in 1980 by Voyager One. And you, uh, being a ring geek, uh, suggest that uh, <laughs> uh, perhaps there are rings around other planets that we have not discovered. And I believe I was just watching a presentation that you have tried to uh, look around Mars as well. Oh, that's right. Yes, I, I have. Uh, I have the, the record of having. Uh, looked at more non-existent ring ring systems than any other human being. Um, so uh, yeah, we should just fill in that. Of course, uh, a couple of years later, the rings of Neptune were also discovered by Voyager. So the giant planets all have rings, and uh, so it was always speculated that Mars might have a ring system. And it has two tiny moons called Phobos and Deimos. And what we know in uh, in ring dynamics is that whenever you have a small moon very common for meteorites, things like that, to hit the small moon, and that raises a cloud of dust. That dust spreads out and forms a ring around the planet. So we would actually very strongly suspect that there are faint rings of Mars, one associated with dust coming off of Phobos and the other made of dust coming off of Deimos. Uh, so that's been speculated about going back literally to the 70s again. Uh, when when rings started uh, entering into the imaginations and the and the awareness of of a lot of ring scientists, uh, so there have been attempts over the years to look for the rings of Mars, and I did the most sensitive two searches uh, using Hubble, the telescope, when we had just the perfect best possible viewing geometry from Earth, something that only comes along along every decade or two. Uh, so I took advantage of both of those occasions with the Hubble telescope, and both of those searches came up with nothing. Uh, so all we really have are upper limits on some probably probably very faint uh, clouds of dust that are in orbit around Mars. Planetary rings are made up of ring particles. Uh, talk to us about the characteristics of these particles in terms of size, in terms of material, in terms of their movement and rotations. Well, it, there is a different answer for every ring system we talk about, which is one of the things that seems puzzling to me is why why don't these ring systems have more in common than they mm -hmm. do uh, the rings of Saturn are very very bright objects they're clearly made of ice we can see the uh, spectra the spectrum of ice when we use look at the uh, rings using the Cassini instruments in addition to some earth-based instruments it's very clearly uh, made of they're made up of ice very very pure ice in fact uh, we know that there have to be some impurities because there are you know, subtle colors in these rings that would indicate maybe there's a little bit of reddish dust mixed in or something like that. But uh, for the most part, these are very, very pure balls of ice. Think, about, think of them as snowballs. Uh, and they range in size from you know, centimeters to probably tens of meters. I think you know, they're the biggest particles in the rings of Saturn are probably the size of a modest house, for example, something like that. So, so that's what's going on at Saturn. Now, uh, when you get to Jupiter, on the other hand, you have, you have actually two different answers to your question. 
One answer is that the rings we see are very, very, very fine dust. In fact, dust is probably the wrong word. They're smoke particles. They are microns in size, so it's something like a few millionths of, of a meter, um, smaller than the size of, of a hair, of the diameter of the hairs on your head. Uh, so these are, these are smoke rings, and they're made up, in the case of Jupiter, you're a little too close to the sun for ice to be around, so these are actually made up of uh, probably uh, dirt would be the best word, um, silicates, uh, carbonaceous material, things like that. They're very, very dark material, but as I said, they're very, very fine dust. And then the puzzle becomes how do you, how do you make dust be stable around, the, around Jupiter? Uh, the fact is that there are uh, forces like uh, radiation pressure for the, the force from the sun, in other words, the force of sunlight on these tiny particles actually sweeps them out of the system over you know, tens or hundreds of, or thousands of years. So we need some source for these rings unless they're very, very young, and it would be hard to imagine that the ring just appeared in the last hundred years, for example. Uh, so what we believe is that there's this skeleton made up of much larger bodies, probably 10 to 100 meter objects, my guess would be, and they are, uh, they are orbiting Jupiter, and then the debris cloud that we see is actually coming off of this um, set of objects that we can't see. Um, so, so those are the two extremes. One is uh, big ice balls and one is very fine dust. Uh, the rings of Uranus are kind of in between. They're mostly made up of bigger particles, but they're also very, very dark. Uh, and, uh, and similarly, at Neptune, the ring particles are very dark. And probably, you know, meters, tens of meters is the largest. may go down to maybe centimeters or so. This leads us to my next question. Uh, when we look at these rings uh, from a distance, uh, these ring systems appear thin with smooth surfaces. However, as we started getting better images and better data, it became clear that uh, there were a number of dynamic processes happening in these ring systems. And it became clear that uh, there were horizontal and vertical surface features. Also, it was observed uh, that uh, the tilt of these ring systems was not uh, fixed. So, let us look at these one by one. Let us first discuss the horizontal and vertical surface features. So, most of the rings are incredibly flat and there's actually a very good reason for that. These, uh, these particles uh, if you think about how orbit dynamics works, everything orbits the center of Saturn. Uh, so we're talking about the Saturn's ring system. Everything talks about the center of the, the body. Uh, if you tilt an object in the rings of Saturn, so it's, say, on the north side of the rings, well, it's going to cross the ring plane and go to the south side of the rings half an orbit later. It's basically got to cross the ring plane twice each orbit. And what that does is it forces all of the ring particles to collide very, very rapidly. So the reason rings are so incredibly flat is just that collisions happen so frequently, and those collisions basically damp out the vertical part, and so the rings become very, very thin, maybe 10 meters, 10, 10 meters thick, 5 meters thick, something like that for the rings of Saturn, which is a pretty amazing number when you consider that these are uh, hundreds of thousands of kilometers in, in diameter, mm -hmm. and yet mm -hmm. only 10 meters. Uh, so that's, that's why they're flat. Uh, the more puzzling question is why are some rings thicker? 
Uh, and that happens in rings where there aren't very many collisions. So there are a few cases where uh, very faint dust rings that uh, just don't have particles that collide very often because there aren't very many particles, uh, those are the ones where sometimes you get uh, a fatter ring. And there are a number of examples of that in the solar system uh, at Jupiter and, uh, and at Saturn as well. So, so we have a few fat rings, but most rings we expect to be very, very thin. When we observe a ring system uh, using a nearby spacecraft or uh, using a telescope, at a time when sunlight hits the surface of the ring system from one side, we see shadows of tiny mountains and we observe uh, dark valleys uh, uh, and, and we observe patterns that inform us that the surface is not smooth. Yeah, so, um, so the, uh, you're asking about the uh, vertical structures in the rings and in particularly in the rings of Saturn uh, and also in Jupiter. I've done a bit of study of that. Uh, one of the most interesting set of observations taken by the Cassini spacecraft happened uh, around 2007 when, uh, I'm sorry, make that 2008, when, uh, when the sun crossed the ring plane of Saturn. So essentially the rings were lit edge on and that is a geometry where you see shadows. When anything is sticking out up or down from the ring plane of Saturn, mm -hmm. it casts a shadow. And suddenly we learned about this whole third dimension to the uh, rings of Saturn. And there are really striking things going on, including, as you say, mountains. Uh, these are very short-lived mountains, but there are places where the ring material is so, uh, so perturbed that collisions are happening in such a way that you jam enough particles into a small amount of space, then they have nowhere to go but up. And so we see things that look very much like mountains at the edges of some of the rings of Saturn. Uh, these are short-lived mountains because they're going through the ring plane. So if you're north at one point in the rings, you're going to be south a couple of hours later. So uh, the mountain is a, is a descriptive term, but it's not a permanent feature in any way. Uh, but that was also one of the times when we learned that there are r some regular patterns of ripples in the rings of Saturn that uh, have come to be understood as sort of the, the last uh, surviving uh, remnants of a big impact that happened into the rings back in 1983. Uh, we no never saw that impact, but it tilted the rings, and that tilt became a kind of a spiral pattern that has been winding up over the decades. So we have now seen, because of this very, very distinctive uh, vertical bending spiral pattern in the rings, kind of like the grooves of an old uh, vinyl record, if your listeners remember what that is, <laughs> uh, that, um, th that those grooves are, are present in, some, in a very similar way in the rings of Saturn, and they give us this evidence that something bashed into the rings uh, some 20 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, and we're now seeing it's, uh, the ripples left behind. This leads us to my next question. In most cases, dynamic ripple patterns are observed uh, in ring systems. You suggest in your publications that if something has changed uh, the tilt of a ring system, an analysis of these ripple patterns can inform us about the cause of this change in the tilt of uh, the ring system. Uh, talk to us about that. Okay, so uh, this goes back to the uh, some of the early data sets we were getting from Cassini. I was working with a good colleague named uh, Matt Hedman, 
he was at Cornell at the time. Now he's at uh, University of Idaho. And we were trying to make sense of a uh, uh, ripples. Uh, we could tell they were vertical patterns of very regular uh, looked like a spiral pattern of ripples in the uh, inner part of the rings and what's called the D-ring. Uh, and it was just completely baffling to us. How do you get a ripple pattern there? Um, some of the other reasons why you get a ripple pattern have to do with uh, things that are being pushed around by small satellites. But in the D-ring, there are no satellites nearby. It, couldn't see, it didn't seem to be that that was the answer. Uh, so we were just gathering the data year by year by year. We saw some saw the pattern in 2007, and then again in 2008, and then again in 2009. And it suddenly became clear that this pattern was changing as we watched it. That the wavelengths, uh, the periodicity between the the crests of the uh, of the ripple pattern started out at almost 30 kilometers, and then year by year it was dropping. It was uh, 28, then 27, then 26. Uh, and so that was telling us something pretty, uh, pretty significant that uh, this was changing before our eyes. So we realized that the way that could happen is if something had actually tilted the entire ring system all at once uh, and very quickly. It had to have happened within a period of hours to days, perhaps. Uh, but if you tilt the ring, so the rings are now on an incline, uh, it'll start as a nice flat but inclined ring. But over time, the, uh, the uh, way the, uh, these tilted rings process, uh, um, uh, with the way these rings uh, change as they're orbiting Saturn, which is a very, very big force on them, is that uh, the, the inner part rotates faster than the outer part. And what starts off as a flat tilted ring becomes a spiral. And that becomes a, a spiral that winds tighter and tighter as the years go by. So we put all that together, we figured out the math, and we realized that uh, for a pattern to be 30 kilometers in 2007 and 28 kilometers in 2008 and 27 kilometers in 2009, uh, you, could you could unwind the ripple pattern, and it pointed to something that had to have tilted the rings very abruptly in late 1983. Uh, which is an interesting result. Uh, we, nobody was watching the rings in 1983. They were unfortunately on the other side of the sun as seen from Earth, so we don't know what could have done that. But if something large kicked the rings, tilted the rings by some kind of an impact, then that could explain the pattern. Uh, so we hypothesized, and I, we still, I think it's our best explanation, that um, uh, a comet came by, and these things happen in the solar system every now and then. A uh, comet broke apart, it bashed into the rings, it sort of consistently tilted the inner part of the rings by a large amount, and then we are seeing the, the winding spiral uh, left over from, from that event. Uh, there's, a, there's an interesting postscript to that story, is that uh, the pattern we were looking at was you know, 30 down to 25 kilometers uh, periodicity. Uh, some years later, the radio science team on Cassini was able to study um, a similar region of the rings, and they found a pattern that was much finer uh, something like three or four kilometers wavelength. Uh, and that seems to obey the same physics. It seems to be the same kind of phenomenon, except that was the result of an impact that probably happened mm, three to four hundred years ago. So I think it's really striking that we can actually see history uh, recorded in, the, in these uh, spiral patterns of, of the rings of Saturn. Something very large hit the uh, rings of Saturn maybe around the year 1600, 
and here we are in the 21st century, and we're still seeing the, the remaining ripples left behind by that impact. Now, this description is about Saturn's ring system. However, we have data about Jupiter's ring system, and we know few years ago, comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 hit Jupiter. Does the data about ripple patterns in Jupiter's ring system correspond to this known impact of comet Shoemaker-Levy 9? And does this confirm the hypothesis? Yes, well, that was, a, that was a really fun, that was one of those rare and really great Eureka moments that comes along when you're doing science. Uh, the history there is that, uh, of course, the um, Galileo spacecraft was orbiting Jupiter in, uh, in the late uh, 1980s into the 1990s, uh, and it obtained a small number of very, very high-resolution images of the rings of Jupiter. And so I had been familiar with that. I had studied that data set going back years ago. And I remember seeing that there was a kind of a ripple pattern in the rings of Jupiter. Uh, but we only had a few images. There was not really uh, much you could do with that except say, huh, what is that? And so I had always had this sort of note in my mind that there's something weird about the rings of Jupiter that we see these ripples. Uh, so when uh, Matt and I discovered these ripples in the rings of Saturn, we started thinking, you know, hey, we've, we've seen something like this before. It was, at, uh, it was in another data set at another ring system around another planet uh, from another spacecraft, but we had seen ripples in the rings of Jupiter. Uh, wouldn't it be great if that could be understood as the same kind of a thing? A, a, an impact into the rings of Jupiter uh, might have tilted it off its axis, and then we're seeing the ripple pattern left uh, some years later. So we went back to that old data set. I still had my notes about it and so on. And we did some quick back-of-the-envelope calculations and said, well, if the wavelength is 1,000 kilometers today. Uh, when did this impact happen? It happened a couple of years earlier. And uh, then the uh, eureka moment was when we realized, no, wait a second, Shoemaker-Levy 9, which was this big uh, comet that impacted Jupiter, uh, when did that happen again? We, and we had to actually, frankly, we had to run off to Wikipedia to look up the date because we couldn't quite remember. And it turned out that the, uh, the spiral pattern we were seeing in the rings of Jupiter, if you unwind the spiral and figure out when the impact had to happen, it was just about the time, within a month or two, of when Shipmaker Levy 9 hit Jupiter. So we had this kind of a smoking gun that... Uh, uh, we realized that at the same time that these uh, big uh, pieces of the comet were hitting directly into Jupiter itself, that there was probably a big cloud of dust nearby surrounding all those, uh, those big particles, uh, and those, par those dust particles probably were, were plowing into the rings at the same time. And so we had, uh, had a very nice uh, consistent story that those dust particles from Shoemaker-Levy 9 uh, tilted the ring, and then a few years later in the Voyager data, I'm sorry, in the Galileo data, we were seeing it. And, uh, of course, that was 20 years earlier that we were finally figuring this all out. So it was a nice little uh, uh, sort of postscript or, uh, you know, end, of, end to the story of the Shoemaker-Levy 9 impact that uh, everybody had uh, sort of stopped, uh, stopped thinking about after all these years. So this is now a widely accepted result? Yes, it does seem to be an accepted result. Uh, our papers on the patterns in the rings of Saturn and uh, Jupiter were published back-to-back -back 
in the in the journal Science um, a couple of years ago. And uh, as far as I know, uh, people seem to seem to believe that they are probably correct. Um, I should also just add one other thing. This just came over the news wires in the last week or so that there's been a report that there may be some evidence for a ripple pattern in the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, and that's, uh, of course, very fascinating to us because uh, it may well be that the same, uh, the same physics that causes uh, ripples to appear when a comet hits the rings of, uh, r rings of Jupiter or Saturn, uh, and if you just scale it up to a much bigger scale, the whole scale of the whole galaxy, uh, the fact is that sometimes galaxies collide, and sometimes a small galaxy can collide with a big galaxy and just pass right through it. But when it does that, it could create a tilt to the galaxy, and that could turn into a spiral pattern too. So I'm not sure that's the answer here, but uh, certainly uh, Matt and I have been struck by the similarities between our explanation for some things going on in the rings of Jupiter and Saturn and some, some recent talk about uh, what happened to, uh, to the Milky Way galaxy. It seems an understanding of dynamic processes that occur in ring systems uh, can inform us uh, about the similar processes that occur uh, during the formation of solar systems and uh, spiral galaxies. I, I like to think so. Now, I mean, that what I just told you is very, very new result. I haven't had a chance to absorb it myself very much. Uh, but it is also definitely true that we see things like, well, you know, if you look at uh, other galaxies, we see that many of them have spiral patterns. Uh, those spiral patterns are called spiral density waves, and they have a certain uh, origin. Uh, they are, ex in terms of the mathematics behind them, they are exactly the same thing that we see in certain regions of the rings of Saturn, where you have a small satellite uh, um, uh, perturbing, gravitationally uh, perturbing the ring material, so the ring material takes up the spiral, spiral formation. Uh, so spiral density waves have been studied in both the rings of Saturn and in the galaxy, and the math is essentially the same. Uh, this ripple result, which of course is very new, um, might be another example of a place where you can use the exact same mathematics to describe uh, a galaxy and a ring. But uh, at the intermediate scale between those two, we also have uh, planetary systems in formation. We see that in the... Uh, data from the Kepler spacecraft that there are, another another spacecraft, we know that there are many stars that have disks around them, which are presumably planetary systems in formation. And once again, the same kind of physics where you can have a, a moon, a, a planet in this case, start to form, and then it clears a gap around it, and it creates ripples and other things. Uh, a lot of the physics that goes on when a planetary system is forming around a star is probably similar to what we see in Saturn's rings. So they, I've always liked to describe Saturn's rings or any ring system, but Saturn seems to be the, the best example. It's kind of a dynamical laboratory. It lets us see the same processes that are going on on these other scales. Uh, the difference is that uh, those other scales, those objects are much further away. We can't see them as well, whereas Saturn is in our own backyard, cosmologically speaking. Uh, also, because it's a small system, things are happening quickly. We see changes in the rings of Saturn. Uh, sometimes over periods of days and weeks. So uh, those are the kinds of changes that might take thousands or millions of years uh, in planetary system formation and in galaxy processes. As our ability to capture data is improving, if we manage 
to capture high resolution data at finer scales uh, for ring systems we can calculate frequency of past comet and other impacts on the planets uh, uh, with 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 rings we certainly are thinking along those lines uh i will add that we did uh in the case of jupiter we found not that there was just one impact the shoemaker levy 9 event while well, was recorded in the rings of jupiter but there was a second one as well so jupiter is a large planet it probably has cometary impacts coming along every few years or at least once a decade uh so so that's a kind of regular regular event and it seems like the rings are a, a place where that records the history of of those impacts uh i will add though that we used the hubble telescope to look for similar patterns in the rings of jupiter uh just about a year ago and we didn't see anything so it may well be that it is this is going on all the time we may just have picked a bad time when there was no pattern in the rings of jupiter and there's another one there today for all we know but uh but uh it's it does seem that we have a way of uh reviewing the history of impacts into these bodies uh, and of course at saturn as i mentioned there was an impact in 1983 we know now uh, and there was an impact around 1600 we also know now uh saturn's a smaller a smaller planet so it doesn't get hit quite so often but uh once again we are we have a, a way of rolling back the history and understanding what might have happened uh years or decades or centuries ago and if we can do this for past uh we can also develop mathematical models to predict frequency of future comet uh, and other impacts that's right the one of those things we know rather poorly about the solar system is how many how many random little objects are floating around how many uh how many you know meter sized or centimeter sized objects there are that are floating around the solar system uh they're certainly there uh we know that because we see shooting stars on earth occasionally uh and sometimes of course like in Russia a year or two ago there was that very very large event uh, so these things are happening all the time but how many of them there are is is really difficult to know we sort of know how many there are on earth because we live here and we know and there are news stories and sometimes people uh have meteors landing in their backyards it does happen uh but it's much harder to know what what that rate is in the outer solar system because we don't have as many uh ways of measuring that and this uh does give us one handle on understanding how many of these objects there are let us now uh, move on to the next topic uh, that i intend to cover uh pluto is an interesting and complicated alien world uh, now we know that four moons orbit around the central binary planet uh, which consists of pluto and its larger moon charon a uh, talk to us about the discovery of uh, the planet pluto and then its demotion uh how should we describe uh, pluto now uh, what is pluto well what is pluto that's a that's a good question i My answer is you can call it whatever you want. Uh the International Astronomical Union decided in 2006 that it was just too small an object to be called a planet and they came up with the term dwarf planet to describe Pluto and now that actually term also term also describes uh Ceres for example which is um a very large asteroid it's actually got a, a spacecraft orbiting it right now and that's a spacecraft uh 
So they used they invented this term dwarf planet, and I actually think the term dwarf planet is a perfectly sensible term because I also study the giant planets and compared to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, you got to say, admit it, Pluto is very, very small. It's smaller than the Earth's moon. So, uh, dwarf planet is a perfectly reasonable term as far as I'm concerned. They took the took things a, one step further in logic than I, I think I agree with that the, the International Astronomical Union did. They said, and a dwarf planet is not a planet. Uh, and I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I think uh, um, I have a dwarf apple tree in my backyard. It still produces apples. I still eat them. If it's not, if a dwarf apple tree is not an apple tree, then what have I been eating all these years? Uh, I mean, I just don't understand the, the idea that a dwarf planet is not a planet. I think they somehow believe that the children of the world would be afraid to count up past nine, and so rather than make them starting to talk about other large objects, well, large-ish objects like Pluto or Ceres, they, uh, they would just stop the counting at eight, and they would decree that there are eight planets in the solar system. But I just don't understand that. We all understand that there are and a lot of little rivers, and I don't see why we have, the kids of the world should have a problem understanding that there are a few big planets and a lot of little planets, but that's them, and that's, they didn't ask me. So, so call it whatever you want. Pluto's a planet, a dwarf planet. I, it, doesn't, it doesn't really uh, matter very much to me. But it's a very interesting place, and that's the thing that I think uh, really matters. My involvement with, the, with, uh, with Pluto science in general goes back to this, uh, what we've been talking about all along. I'm a ring guy. And uh, so when uh, other colleagues of mine um, discovered two small moons of, of Pluto, they're called, uh, they're called uh, Nix and Hydra, discovered in 2005 and 2006, uh, got me thinking, just for the same reason that I looked for rings of Mars, when you have a small moon, uh, it puts out dust, and so maybe there could be rings around Pluto. And that was the topic of some Hubble observations that I made back in, uh, let's see, that would be 2011, uh, looking for, we took very, very long exposures of Pluto, did some image processing tricks and some camera tricks to uh, push down all that glare around the planet itself, and we uh, decided, to, in order to see if there were any rings there, uh, we didn't find any rings, but we did find uh, a little dot, an extra dot orbiting Pluto, which is now the moon known as Kerberos. And a year after that, we looked at, uh, we looked again, we had some more time on the telescope, we had some more sensitive ways of processing the data, and that's when another little moon, now called Styx, also showed up. So based on uh, my work with uh, satellites of Pluto, uh, I've now been added to the uh, science team for New Horizons, and I'm very involved in that. But uh, it's, uh, it's sort of an accidental Pluto scientist is the way I describe myself. I didn't have any expectation of ever really thinking about Pluto or even, you know, I mean, it's an interesting place, of course, but I didn't really have any uh, expertise on, on the topic until they started finding all these little moons and raising possibilities about rings and so on. And so now I find myself to be the accidental Pluto scientist. And I believe it is hard to observe Pluto from Earth. Not only that it is too far, but uh, you get a lot of stars in the background. Yeah, Pluto is right in front of Sagittarius, the constellation of Sagittarius, which essentially marks the center 
of the Milky Way galaxy as we see it. So uh, there are, when you look at Pluto in uh, Hubble or any other, uh, any other telescope, uh, there is just a huge number of stars in the background. This is very different from the work I've done. Uh, for example, I've used Hubble to look at Uranus and Neptune, uh, and you pretty much never see a star. There, you see a few of them occasionally going through your field of view, but it doesn't happen very often. Uh, in the case of Pluto, they're there all the time, and it does make the analysis of uh, Pluto data much more difficult because there are so many extra objects that you have to deal with. So perhaps bringing a spacecraft to Pluto was the best uh, way to observe that world? Well, for all kinds of reasons, uh, it's better to do things with the spacecraft. Uh, the best you can do with Pluto is uh, on the Hubble telescope, the size of Pluto, the disk of Pluto as seen from Earth, it, it, uh, it overlaps two pixels of the finest, um, the finest resolution camera on the Hubble telescope. So if you really want to see what's going on in Pluto, you can't, you can't have just two pixels. You need to send a camera there uh, that can resolve, it, resolve the surface in all kinds of detail. Uh, so that's, uh, there, there, there were always good reasons for going to Pluto, and, and this, is just one, this is just one more. After uh, this uh, Pluto flyby, uh, what is next uh, for the New Horizons spacecraft? Uh, where it will go from there? Yes, it is. Um, well, it will, it's, it's going in a straight line. I mean, that's one of the consequences of the fact that Pluto is very, very small, and we've got a spacecraft that's moving very, very fast is that it doesn't really get deflected by Pluto very much. So it goes by in just about a straight line. Uh, we do have a little bit of option for where we direct it. And there was a, a fantastic result that some of my colleagues had. They spent a huge amount of time uh, on the Hubble telescope with the uh, cooperation of the uh, Space Telescope Science Institute, who was remarkably, uh, remarkably good to us in that regard. Uh, we had the time we needed to survey the sky around Pluto and we have finally found a small object called a Kuiper Belt object. Uh, it's like an asteroid, but it's out much further away. It's past Pluto. And now that we've got the opportunity, at least, to target and fly by a Kuiper Belt object coming up um, a few years after the a few years after uh, the the Pluto flyby itself. So there may be another another science mission for for New Horizons, which will be to see our first get our first close up look at. Uh, at the Kuiper Belt. Uh, for how long uh, we will be able to communicate uh, with the spacecraft? How much fuel is there and how long it will stay in the communication range? Uh, will this spacecraft uh, follow the footsteps uh, of Voyager spacecrafts? Uh, yes, it will. It will be operational, well, we hope it will be operational for, for many, many years to come. The, uh, the, the power in the form of uh, the nuclear generator that is on the, on the spacecraft, eventually the, uh, the plutonium just, you go through a half-life or two and it has much less power, uh, as of course has been happening for Voyager too. There's a reason why none of the other instruments operate on Voyager now. It's just detecting magnetic, uh, magnetic fields and the like, uh, it's because those are very low power instruments and those are the only things that uh, it still has enough power to do. Uh, but so in the case of New Horizons, we hope it will do the flyby of a Kuiper Belt object a couple of years later. And then after that, it'll just continue sailing off into the uh, Kuiper Belt. Now, it is not moving as fast as Voyager 1 or Voyager 2. 
So uh, we're never, it's never going to overtake them in any sense. Those are still the fastest moving objects that we humans have ever sent anywhere. Uh, but, uh, but New Horizons will continue off into the galaxy. Is this going to be third spacecraft uh, that leaves the solar system after Voyager 1 and Voyager 2? Well, we have uh, Voyager and 1 and Voyager 2 are unique in that they are they're leaving the solar system and they are also still operational. We, of course, did have Pioneers 10 and 11. They were uh, uh, somewhat less sophisticated spacecraft that did flybys of uh, Jupiter and Saturn a couple of years before Voyager, and they are also leaving the solar system, but they, uh, they, stopped, they stopped working uh, years ago. So uh, we certainly have high hopes that we'll be uh, still talking to New Horizons uh, when it crosses the heliopause and, and leaves our solar system. Dr. Mark Schwalter, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Oh, this has been fantastic. I've, I've, uh, I've enjoyed talking to you, Wasim. I really appreciate this. Thank you and goodbye. All right. Thanks a lot.